Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look, and you'll see into your imagination. I had to open that way. I saw Wonka over the holidays, and so I just had to do that. Uh, Thank you. Welcome. I am so excited about this study. Uh, The book by Walter Brueggemann is one of my favorites. It has uh, guided me and therefore you without your knowing it for years now. It has guided many of the scholars who have shaped my imagination over the years. Uh, I had to laugh after a few years at uh, Duke Divinity School after this book was assigned to me for the third consecutive semester uh, by the classes that I, that I was taking at the time. Uh, they really liked the book there, but uh, I fell in love with it, and I want to share it with you. So this is what it looks like. This is the newest version. Uh, we may have some extra copies, I think. Heather is here tonight. Thank you, Heather. We have uh, first come, first serve. Don't everyone jump at once. Um, you can find them online for cheap, too. 10, 12 bucks, maybe a little more. Um, and there are older versions that may not look like this, but have mostly the same words. Might be missing, uh, you know, a, a preamble or a foreword or something. But this is the new version, if you're looking for it. Uh, this is the picture. Now, I... Uh, I want to start by defining some terms because this is a re- it's a small book, but it's really thick. Uh, several of you have already come up to me and said, I, I read it, the uh, first chapter, and uh, I needed a dictionary. It's okay. Even if you don't read it, you don't get a copy, that's okay too. My, my attempt with this study is to make it plain for you. Uh, to draw out uh, the major notes and the major themes and to present them in a way you can understand. And you'll be the judge of that five weeks from now. Uh, But if you are interested to tackle a a seminary book, uh, this is my favorite, perhaps, of all of them. If you woke me up in the middle of the night and said, real quick, what's your favorite? This is the one I would blurt out. Okay. So, prophetic imagination. We'll start really simple with the word prophet. There's a lot of confusion in, uh, I think, conventional wisdom about prophecy. The language of prophet, prophecy, prophetic in our culture uh, has been rather domesticated. Um, Often you'll think Or I will say, people will think when they hear the word prophetic, uh, probably is something along the lines of telling the future, kind of seeing the future. Or they may think of something like a a kind of speaking truth to power, which probably involves yelling or storming the barricades. We're talking about something much more expansive, nuanced than that. 
First, what is a prophet? Okay, so uh, the word prophet uh, comes from the Greek. Can't see it. Yeah. That's. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. Can't see that either, can you? Man. I'm going to do a quick check of my supplies. I'll see it. So, if I can't write it, I'll just tell Prophet means uh, someone who is uh, an interpreter. It's that simple. A prophet is an interpreter. Before a prophet sees out into the future, uh, before a prophet ever speaks truth to power, a prophet helps us read. Helps us understand what we're reading. In the Hebrew Scriptures, they're divided into three sections. If you go to a Hebrew Bible, in the original language, you'll be reading from right to left, and you'll see that the whole thing is divided in three sections. Uh, the Torah, uh, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Nevi'im are the prophets. Ketuvim are the writings. So, uh, kind of the history of Israel. Oh, thank you. Wonderful. Hopefully it's kind of that better? Woohoo! Thank you, KC. Okay, that's interpreter. <laughs> And then all the way back, you get the Nevi'im. I'll spare you the actual Hebrew. I don't remember how to write it in Hebrew anyway. <laughs> but uh, a, a Nevi'im, a Nevi, is, uh, im is plural. So that uh, the prophets, Nevi'im, are spokespeople. Someone who speaks for whom? In this case, God. What do so many of the prophetic oracles that you run across in Scripture uh, have situated? What's that phrase right before you hear it? Thus saith the Lord. Thank you, Randy Harder, Bible study teacher extraordinary. Thus saith the Lord. I'm going to tell you on God's behalf what God is saying. I am God's spokesperson, God's herald, God's messenger. That's prophecy. That's prophetic. Now, uh, from Burgamon's perspective, the prophetic has to do with the right use of words. Also sounds very simple. In fact, he says all social reality springs fresh from the word, from words. We know what we know. We experience what we experience. All the reality in which we live is shaped by words. In the beginning, God creates using words. God speaks. It comes to be. Uh, and that is a progenitor for all the rest of reality. The re we shape our reality, our experiences with language, words. Pro the prophetic has to do with 
carefully using the power of language. Be careful what we say. Be very careful what we say on God's behalf. So, again, this isn't about fortune-telling. It's not about uh, mere social action. It is about being concerned, as Brueggemann says, with the future as it impinges on the present. It's also rooted in tradition. So the, the words we speak on God's behalf are shaped by words that have come before us. We learn how to speak prophetically. And we learn how to articulate God's message with a special kind of urgency. Uh, Thus saith the Lord, you've got to hear this. This is really important. This is going to change your life. It's going to change our community's life. It's going to change our nation's life. could change the world's life. Now, I want on this occasion, leading up to Martin Luther King's birthday on Monday, um, January 15th. Cliff Christian is also born on January 15th. There he is. Now, I want to um, share with you about a minute and a half, two minute clip of King speaking prophetically. And I'll remark on it. Not ever happened before. Okay. While he's working on this, I want to tell you about. Uh, so I've described a bit about prophetic. I also want to describe about what Brugma means by imagination, because King does both. He does prophecy. He does it imaginatively. So imagination has to do with an alternative. Yay. Oh, that's good. That's where it's supposed to start. 
of my um, dexterity with technology. I, uh, he, he's not telling the future. He is and he isn't. He, he's not looking in a crystal ball. Um, he's not peering through Revelation and trying to decipher these secret codes and uh, write something like the Left Behind series. He's, he's recognizing what justice might look like for the United States of America. And for the church, he's seeing the hope of that, and he's bringing it back into, from the future into the present. So he's juxtaposing the present with a possible future and offering hope. And I, I showed you the moment of the speech, or one of the moments that speaks most deeply to me, because only about 15 years after he preached that sermon, that was my reality. I remember coming home, uh, I remember my parents telling me that I came home uh, after a few months being in kindergarten. Uh, and this, was, uh, this would have been about 10 years after integration, in where I'm from. Uh, and telling my parents about William Hawkins. Now, I'm white, William was black, uh, and uh, my parents just thought that was great. It wasn't possible for them. King, in that sense, seeing the future. 
And in that sense, Brueggemann is trying to get us to see what prophetic really means. Naming a possible future with God's help. Recognizing what justice looks like, what compassion looks like, and reckoning with that in the present, even though those conditions may not yet exist. It's calling them forth. It's speaking them into existence. And then challenging the status quo to accept that new hope. That's so much of what prophetic means. How many of you went to, went to elementary, secondary school before integration? How many after? It's, just, it's a really striking difference between uh, the way you, many of you grew up and the way many of the rest of us grew up. I mean, I walked down hallways in my school as a, as a young child with posters of, of King and, and other civil rights leaders, Ralph Abernathy, and uh, you name it. I mean, it, there was a, it was an imaginarium for me. It wasn't strange to me. Um, and that's been a gift to me for the rest of my life. And that was made possible by one of our countries, I would say our country's greatest prophet, whose words we just heard. King uses his imagination to bring back from the future into the present a possible reality that he has discerned from the tradition of the scriptures, the tradition of the church, the language of justice, the language of compassion. And he puts on display for the whole nation, in this case, an alternative consciousness and perception. Remember, he, he, he's offering this speech in the early 60s. Uh, the, the descriptions he's offering did not exist mostly at that time. He's calling them forth into our imagination so that they begin to take root and potentially become reality. That's the, the game, if you will, of, of speaking prophetically. King talks about imagination. I mean, Brueggemann talks about imagination as a channel of visionary awareness. And he also says that established institutions and social conventions are deeply inhospitable to such imagination. It, it, it doesn't really matter uh, where you are in the world or what time in history you're living. This is always true. It's true in the, the halls of government. It's true in the halls of a church or a school or any kind of system or power or principality. If you, took, uh, if you, if you came to the powers and principalities course I did last May, it's a good precursor to this study. I don't know if you remember... Uh, just how this looks when it works out, when, when prophecy, even a taste of prophetic imagination uh, is uttered in places where it's not welcome. I don't know if you remember the story about the house chaplain being uh, fired by the then speaker of the house uh, for praying a prayer before they were about to vote on tax cuts. So um, here's part of Father Conroy's 
prayer. May all members be mindful that the institutions and instructions of our great nation guarantee the opportunities that have allowed some to achieve great success while others continue to struggle. May their efforts these days guarantee that there are not winners and losers under new tax laws, but benefits balanced and shared by all Americans. And for saying that, he walks into the hallway and the House Speaker just happens to pass by him and says, uh, Padre, you just stay out of politics. He's the House chaplain. He, pr- he prided himself on really staying out of politics, speaking uh, not with neutrality, but not without partisanship. And just for that little touch, that little, that little rub against the legislation at stake, off of his head. Now, there was a great outcry and he got his job back, but anyhow, you get the point. Prophetic imagination is also dangerous. It's often not welcome. It's really hard at first. What happens to so many prophets? What happened to King? So, we're not talking about light matters, as you might have expected by coming to listen to me. We're also, I I want to make sure that even though I have uh, called upon the memory of King, we're also not just talking about individuals. We're not just talking about preachers, pastors, individual speakers, charismatic people. We're also really talking about, even more than that, prophetic communities. Communities that embody a prophetic imagination by their congregating and by their acting together. Prophetic ministries evoke, form, and reform an alternative community. There's that word again, alternative. It's a little dated, uh, but again, this book is older than I am. 1978. Uh, And... That word back then had a little bit more of a shock value to it. Now in Asheville, it just kind of conjures up people who dress like they're mad at their parents um, or like a music category on iTunes. However, uh, I think it still has a little bit of a power to it. We're talking about forming an alternative community. Uh, He says that prophecy is born precisely in that moment when the emergence of social political reality is so radical and inexplicable that it has nothing less than a theological cause. So we're also talking about God. The otherness of God, inasmuch as we take that on and embody it, is going to make us strange and make us uh, an alternative community, whether we were going for that or not. Brueggemann is basing all of this on his reading of Old Testament texts, the Hebrew Bible, uh, in which the nation of Israel is born, he says, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Uh, A community like this didn't exist before. He calls it a new social community in history. And it required a, a recognition of God's religious freedom over and against imperial order and uh, the language of the imperial language of triumph. He also says, and this is uh, this is the hardest part for people with jobs like mine. 
But it's also hard for everybody who's part of a prophetic community. He says, empires prefer reasoned voices who see it all, who understand both sides, and who regard polemics as unworthy of God and divisive of the public good. Prophetic imagination takes sides. Prophetic imagination does not speak carefully, diplomatically, neutrally. The the prophetic imagination calls forth speech that lands on a side. You ever heard the phrase God's preferential option for the poor? Doesn't mean that God does not love the other side, the side being judged or the imperial, the agents of the, the imperial consciousness, the empire. The empire's people. But it does mean that God is going to take a side so that there is a precision to the language and there's a certain direction uh, to the movement away, uh, a critique of the imperial language. That's where you really start messing with the spigots. Taking sides. But you can't have prophetic imagination without that kind of partisanship. I don't mean Republican, Democrat. I mean taking a side. Now, there are two tasks that he says of prophetic ministry. And the first is critique. Two main categories. A prophetic ministry will critique. It is not carping or denouncing, he says. It's simply naming ways that the powers are not keeping their promises. In fact, I remember hearing uh, a few years ago a podcast where Brueggemann himself was critiquing capitalism. He said capitalism has not kept its promises. That's That's a prophetic critique by the author himself. Empire wants to say everything's fine. Prophetic critique says, oh, oh no, it's not. You remember when Jeremiah critiques the royal court for saying there's peace? peace when there is no peace and he's warning of uh, the destruction to come and the royal court saying everybody calm down nothing to see here just kind of a a loony uh, bible reading guy over here don't pay attention to him listen to us we're the ones in charge jeremiah's over in the corner and even sometimes in the stocks and the dungeon saying no you are not telling the truth He's critiquing. He offers prophetic critique. Another expression of critique is grief, lament, crying out. Um, the, The expression of pain. That really lets people know things are not okay when the official narrative is that they are okay. It pierces through that official narrative and says, no, that's wrong. That's not what's really happening. 
Uh, then the other task of prophetic ministry is energizing. And that's the, that's the fun part. Not fun for the powers, but it's, that's where the real hope comes in. Uh, energizing expresses new realities in the midst of old ones. King. Little black boys and little black girls will sit at the table of brotherhood with little white boys and little white girls. That's energizing. Uh, it's linked to hope. Hasn't happened yet, but I'm naming it. I'm saying it's possible. I'm saying this is what God's desire is on our behalf. This is our destiny. I'm creating it with words. And I'm going to wait for the reality to take shape in flesh. That's energizing. So energizing also has to do with enabling and knowing without full understanding. And there's a really interesting passage in here about how Pharaoh's heart is hardened. God keeps hardening Pharaoh's heart. I've always been really puzzled by that. Uh, Doesn't Pharaoh have any agency here? God's doing the hardening of his heart. But Brueggemann says that there's a a mystery to that that, that's hopeful. Uh, God is going to do something new. Uh, Pharaoh is going to answer for uh, the oppression uh, and the violence that he's done to God's people. Also, energizing can really sound foolish. It especially sounds foolish at first. You get this same theme from Paul in the New Testament. Uh, I'm a fool for the gospel. Uh, There is a foolishness to preaching. Trust me. (laughs) There is a foolishness to preaching. I regularly feel like a fool for some of the things that I try to evoke. And uh, I've got a lot of good company. No offense. Uh, You feel it too. Hoping along with me uh, for the desires of our hearts uh, as we seek God's dream for our life together. It really sometimes can sound foolish. Now, where where is Brueggemann getting all this? Is he is he in an ivory tower somewhere, just kind of uh, dreaming things up and putting them on paper so he can get published and get tenure? No, he is reading the Old Testament uh, with a magnifying glass, with an electron microscope. He's talking about actual people in history who have experienced this kind of dynamic in their relationship with God. And the first to do it was the country or the nation of Israel. Uh, This vulnerable band of enslaved people living in Egypt, uh, making bricks for the empire. Israel, he says, commences a new social reality in history. Never had existed like that before. A community worshiping one God, a free God, whose name sounded like wind, breath, spirit. A God whose name means uh, I am who I am. That's new. No one, that was not, there were no other nations talking about God like that. Uh, Yahweh means I am who I am. I'll be who I will be. 
Uh, we really don't even know how to pronounce it. I'm saying Yahweh, but we, we don't know. It may have been said another way. It sounds like breathing. Yahweh. Uh, this is new, in other words. Moses is the leader of this new nation. He has been called out of, uh, again, the middle of nowhere. He wasn't asking for this. God comes to him in a flame and speaks and conscripts him into this work. He doesn't want to do it. He, he has a stuttering problem. God says, that's fine. Aaron will go with you. He's a lot better speaker than you anyway. But I, I really need you to spearhead this. I need you to be the prime mover. And so he goes, and this is his politics. He counters the politics of oppression and exploitation with the politics of justice and compassion. He leads into existence a new social community that matches the vision of God's freedom. Uh, Brueggemann says Moses' work is an assault on the consciousness of the empire. Uh, aimed at nothing less than the dismantling of the empire, both in its social practices and in its mythic pretensions. So what, what, where does this happen? How does he start doing this? And where do we see this happening in the scriptures? So uh, if, you, if you think about Exodus 5, 7 through 10, you begin to see uh, the, you, you hear a kind of enraging imperial speech uh, about the Israelites. Here's what uh, Pharaoh commands the taskmasters of the people and their supervisors. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Um, uh, do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That's why they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them. Then they will labor at it and pay no attention to uh, our deceptive words or to deceptive words. This really, uh, the, the gall of this becomes fresh all, all anew when you think about uh, the Hungarian Jews who were put in a ghetto before they were carted off to concentration camps. Where were they taken to work? A brick factory. We also see Israel, Israel's awareness of the imperial speech and what they're trying to do is the beginning of the dismantling. They're aware of what's happening to them. They know. They're on to Pharaoh. And uh, they followed the money, if you will. Um. Then what happens? Uh, a series of Moses comes and begins to go head to head with Pharaoh. What happens? The plagues. Well, interestingly enough, you may remember this. Uh, the first two plagues, the, the turning of the Nile and then uh, the frogs. The Pharaoh's people, he's got people, he's got technicians you know, he's got Silicon Valley. Uh, they replicate those uh, plagues. Anything you can do, I can do better. Until the third plague. What happens in the third plague? Anybody remember number three? Put the top of your head. 
gnats. The gnats come. Oh my God. You're growing up from the South. You know gnats, that's a problem. Especially if they're everywhere and you're breathing them in. They're every, it's just the air is gnats. Um, Silicon Valley couldn't replicate that. Pharaoh couldn't, they couldn't figure that out. And from then on, the, the empire just began to become more and more dismantled. It began to unravel. Uh, this is part of Israel's criticism. Then uh, we also see the way that Israel's lament uh, be- affects Pharaoh and his nation. Um, Exodus uh, 2, verses 23 through 25. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose to God. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites and God took notice of them. They cried out. They lamented. They expressed their grief. And guess what? By some enchanting miracle, God heard, God listened, and then God began to respond. God hears their cry. And then the cry ironically intensifies for Pharaoh. Pharaoh, again, ironically, uh, cries out himself. Why? Eventually. His son uh, his son is taken, his son dies. Uh, in fact, there's not a household in all of Egypt where there's not a, a dead person. And so the whole nation cries out. Would not, have, would not have come to that if they had listened to Israel's cry. Anyway, so that's, these are the dynamics of Israel's criticism. Here's some dynamics of Israel's energizing. This is a really interesting passage I've never noticed before. Thank you, Walter Brueggemann, for bringing it uh, to the forefront. Exodus eleven seven. But not a dog shall growl at any of the Israelites, not at people, not at animals, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So even the even the the dogs in the street are paying attention now and have been conscripted into to God's uh, saving plan for Israel. So Israel's energizing over time depicts really not an aloof, comfortable, numb God, but a God who, Brueggemann says, sits in the divine council on the edge of his seat. This God's really involved. He's even... Messing with the, with the dogs. Israel's energizing also puts on display a God who takes sides. God has taken the side of this people who's been enslaved. Does it mean God doesn't love Pharaoh, love the Egyptians? Uh, but they have sown the wind, and now they're going to reap the whirlwind. Where does prophetic imagination go? What's the point? Uh, what's the end game? What's the, what scholars call the telos, the end, the purpose? Brueggemann says, prophetic imagination culminates 
in doxology. I love doxology because uh, when I finally figured out what it really was, it really changed my preaching. This was years ago. Uh, my preaching was very moralistic early on, uh, and, and it's still a kind of bad habit that I have to beat back. But um, moralism, moralistic preaching will sound like this. We have to, we ought to, we must, we really need to. Um, we, we've got to get out and dot, dot, dot. Doxology, pay attention to that. Doxology begins with God. What God has done. Let's give thanks to God. It doesn't serve, it's not even persuasive language. It's just praising God. Just giving thanks to God for what God has done. That saved me as a, as a preacher. That recognizing the difference between, uh, you know, persuasive speech and simply enjoying what God has done. And when I'm at my best, and I think when any preacher is at their best, uh, their words culminate, their overarching preaching ministry evokes doxology, culminates in doxology, and enables a congregation to share in that uh, and to be doxological in their own speech and in their, their life together. Church is at its best when, when we're celebrating uh, in many ways. We're not trying to do anything. We're simply recognizing the joy of being with God and, and God being with us. That's the end game for prophetic critique. And we hear it uh, in the songs after the, after the Egyptians are drowned. They get to the Israelites get to the other side of the sea. They're on dry ground. They turn around and they sing. Uh, they don't say, boy, we really got to find some food around here. It's awful dry out here in the desert and whatnot. No, they turn around and they say, Miriam, woman, prophetic, uh, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider, he is thrown into the sea. That's called the song of the sea. Uh, and that is a, a kind of conclusive statement, doxological celebration of the prophetic ministry of Moses that has become now a shared prophetic ministry for the whole nation. Now, we'll conclude with doxological speech from our dear friend, Martin Luther King, if this will work. Oh, 
know just because I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. to live a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So you see, he just about fell down when he walked off the stage. He was sick that night. Uh, the flu or something, bad cold. Uh, and he launched into that speech. Um, wasn't really a prepared speech. The next day he was shot and killed. Um, so the first speech I showed, uh, beginning of when he began to launch into I Have a Dream, that, was, that wasn't on paper. He had notes. He had a manuscript. And then Mahalia Jackson is sitting back there somewhere and said, tell him about the dream, Michael. And he had been preaching a sermon like this, and it, and it just came to him. And he, he, his eyes lift up, and he launches into prophetic imagination. And, and the culminating speech of his life ends with, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He doesn't say, we've got to get there in the promise land. He says, we will get there. I may not get with you, but we will get there. Oh, that is prophetic imagination culminating in doxology. And that is the ministry given to us. I am so happy to be part of a prophetic community. And I look forward to the subsequent weeks uh, of diving deeper into what prophetic imagination looks like uh, in the world, in our nation, and in our prophetic community. Thank you all.
doing? All right, how you doing? Pretty good.